Hello again and welcome to the Thanksgiving edition of the two-man power trip of wrestling. And as always, with the Thanksgiving episode, we like to bring you something special. We like to do something nice. And as always, to give back to the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling. And before we get into today's episode, I'd like to take a walk down memory lane and relive some classic moments from the Thanksgiving night tradition, the WWF Survivor Series, with a few classic moments as told to us by both Mo from Men on a Mission and the Gobbly Gooker himself, Hector Guerrero. So before we get into today's episode, please strap in for a few minutes here and listen to some classic stories from two classic episodes of the two-man power trip of wrestling. <laughs> hey, head shrinkers! <laughs> I've got a partner for Survivor Series 2! <laughs> I would like to take this time to introduce him to you, so here's Doink! We're not advertised to be on the pay-per-view. That we were just there, and then we're just sitting there in the locker room. And somebody says, "Come to us and say, hey guys, y'all need to go to makeup." And we're like, "Go to makeup? What the hell are you talking about?" It's like they was like, "Go to makeup." So we go to makeup, and the first thing that we do, they say, "Sit down in the chair," and they start setting us up. And we're like, "What is this about?" And they're like. Well, uh, you two guys with Oscar and the Bushwhackers are going to be the four dorks tonight. And <laughs> it, 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 was just, it was so stupid, man. We were like, are you kidding me? Really? I mean, I mean so we thought like, man, this has got to be a rib, right? Really? You, you all, we just got here, you clowning us already? You know, <laughs> literally clowning us, right? Vince is like, guys, you could do it just we just want you to have fun. We don't. It's not. It's not supposed to be a, uh, 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 a serious thing, you know. Find the funniest ways to beat each other, you know. Slip on a banana peel, throw the, the pail of confetti, use a scooter. I mean, they pretty much said, "Mo, we want you somewhere during the match to circle the ring with the scooter." And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? And I'm, here I am in the ring, circling the ring with a scooter, and the scooter's broke. The wheel's going one way. I'm trying to go the other way. It was it was so stupid, man. But yet it was so entertaining. When you look back at it afterwards, it's like, that is the funniest, dumbest shit you ever seen in your life. But, but it worked, you know. It worked. Things are really heating up here at the Survivor Series. And I got to tell you, these great fans here in Hartford, Connecticut are red hot, too. But this egg is going to hatch here tonight. As a matter of fact, hold on. I, I can hear it starting to creak and crack right now. Oh, oh there it is! What is it? What, what in the world? Oh, my God. What? What in the world is this? I don't know. They got a pair of legs like my mother-in-law, pal. Look at the feet on this thing. I can't believe what in God's name is this. Holy God. What, what is with the gobbledy? The gobbledy goop. Ha! Don't tell me you're the gobbledy gooker. You've got to be kidding me. And, I, and, then, and then they said, Hector Guerrero? I go, yes. 
He says, don't hang up. This is uh, Vince would like to talk to you. <laughs> so I go, who? Vince McMahon would like to talk to you. So I talked to Vince. And we, he gave me the whole idea that you want to do uh, something like the San Diego chicken and crack it out of an egg at Survivor Series and call it exciting, you know, like E-G-G, exciting. Interesting because my brother, Eddie, used to, used to call him Egg because he was Eddie Gory Guerrero, so Egg, so interesting. But going back to the gobbledygooker, but I remember that the town was very unforgiving, too. As soon as I cracked out of that egg, they were booing, man. I mean, booing. Now, the kids were yelling. I could hear some of the kids yelling, but the boos were more than the kids. So it was, uh, it was it's immediately, you know, and then Gene was trying to, you know, work it up. As a matter of fact, when I got down and he put down the mic, after we had a little lingo we did, I said to him, Gene, is he taking it? He says, well, we said, Hector, we got to get it over. Let's get it over. He just, we well, made our way to the ring and he, you know, he tried to follow me up and he, he, he fell in the ropes and he tried to do the things that I was trying to do and he couldn't do them, you know, and this and that. And he did that, you know, to try to get it over. Well, the next day he was black and blue, I heard. Yeah, yeah that's that's how good Gene, Gene, you know, mean Gene was. He's, He's a he's a he's a player, man. A great guy. Anyway, but uh, they looked at it in a, as a frown. This is probably you know what? If I would have known that that's the type of crowd that was in Hartford, Connecticut, I would have I wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have done it. I didn't know his I didn't know his territory. Boy, I walked into the dressing room and I'm looking. He's looking at me. He's not looking, he's not happy to look at me. <laughs> he was he was not happy. And he's looking at me. He's giving me very dirty looks. And I'm going oh, wonder if he knows and uh, I was gonna say something about it but then he walked away here comes Gorilla Monsoon walks into the door and he looks at me you couldn't see right and I go you think he says well we figured it out <laughs> what's up guys it's the phenomenal AJ Styles you're listening to the two-man power trip oh my god this is Joey Styles and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast this is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat this is Cody Rhodes the Prince of Pro Wrestling, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the Boogie Woogie Man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there, this is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, John. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey man, what's up guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie! Homicide with a big homie club! Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling! Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling.
scientific wow. uh, display of skills here like we did earlier on. He might have broke the guy's back throwing him into the pole like that. Break your heart if he did, huh? Really. Amato with Dale Wolf down on the knee, down to the canvas. And what's he going to do? Try to get him over. Amato with Martel with Dale Wolf. It's over. And yes, indeed it is. So just when you thought you're going to see a change of heart on the part of the model Rick Martel, he shows us his true colors, which just happen to be shocking pink. But he could be, folks, the next WWF champion. Just like me. That's for sure. Arrogant through and through. Let's go back and take another look. Now here you see him shaking hands, and then it comes the mighty clothesline, change of direction. There you go. That this is the, the two-man power trip of wrestling, and you are listening to the Thanksgiving 2017 episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast, brought to you today and powered by the gigantic WrestleCade weekend down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. If you have the availability to get to Winston-Salem, North Carolina this weekend, please come and check out WrestleCade, an event filled with over 125 wrestling superstars, including including a Four Horsemen reunion with Arne Anderson, Barry Windham, and Tully Blanchard. It's all going down at WrestleCade this weekend in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And if you're lucky enough, you might even catch us, the two-man power trip of wrestling, alongside not only the Horsemen, but the franchise Shane Douglas and Kevin Sullivan. And it's all at WrestleCade this weekend in Winston-Salem, North Carolina at the Benton Convention Center. And if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and usually I'm joined here by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. But for the sake of the holiday, we're going to get right into today's episode as we feature a former WWF and WCW wrestling enhancement talent. And that, of course, is no knock to our guest today as Dusty Wolf, or if you remember him as Dale Wolf, joins today's program. And Dusty Wolf did so much when he wrestled in the WWF and WCW, getting over so much of the big name talent of the day. And really, it's a who's who of guys he did wrestle, whether it's Rick Martel, who you heard right up the top, or George the Animal Steel, or Rowdy Roddy Piper, or Macho Man Randy Savage. Anybody and everybody who was in the WWF at that time faced off with Dusty Wolf at some point in their tenure up in the New York Federation. But Dusty Wolf tells us not only the stories of his days as an enhancement talent, but also all the places that he wrestled throughout his career and all the cool stories that he has experienced along the way. So we want to get right into today's interview today. And as always, on the Thanksgiving episode, we wish you nothing but the best here in the United States and wishing you a very happy and healthy Thanksgiving. And we are very thankful for all the listeners here of the two-man Power Trip of Wrestling podcast. And we're also very thankful for the response that we have received for the Triple Threat podcast, which you know comes out every single Tuesday here on this iTunes feed featuring John, myself, and our, and our great co-host, the franchise, Shane Douglas. So thank you for that, and thank you for making it such a huge success so far in the couple weeks we've been running it here on our iTunes feed. So much more to come, and if you caught this week's episode, you heard Shane detail his shocking turn on Tommy Dreamer at House of Hardcore 35 last weekend at the ECW Arena, and a possible formation of another triple threat 
featuring Magnus and Joey Matthews alongside Shane. So more developing as it comes across our table at the Triple Threat Podcast. We will give you all the information. So stay tuned for that and stay tuned here for Dusty Wolf. So John's going to creep back in here for a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business. And we will catch you on the flip side and we will see you on another episode of our show next week. So enjoy Dusty Wolf and enjoy your Thanksgiving day. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Rasslin Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rose, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Buff Bagwell, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And if you're on Android, please check us out on Google Play or Player FM. Follow along with a two-man power trip in 2017 as we come to a town near you. TMPT hits the road. November 4th, we hit the big event in New York City. And the big one, the granddaddy of them all, the big guy. Wrestlecade in North Carolina on 11:25 with Arn Anderson and Telly Blanchard. There will be a Four Horsemen reunion for sure. So follow along with the two-man power trip as you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, a journeyman wrestler who's wrestled in both the WWF and WCW. He's a former three-time WWC Tag Team Champion. He is the one. He is the only. He is Dusty Ordale Wolf. Please enjoy. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Mr. Wolf's my dad. Call me Dusty. You got it, Dusty. It is. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for coming on. We're, uh, you know, we're gonna take, take a nice walk down memory lane, talk a little wrestling, right. and, uh, and have some fun. So if you're ready to go, See if I remember any of it, yeah, 
<laughs> hey, that's always, that's the first uh, that's the first struggle. We'll uh, we'll you know we, we don't remember everything, but we uh, we do our best. But uh, we're well, so I like Spotnik. If I can't remember it, I'll embellish it after it sounds good. So. <laughs> Well, it's kind of funny, and this is, you know, how we kind of – we'll start off the interview in a little bit more of a casual okay. way because, you know, uh, when I think about uh, I think about your career, I think about Dusty Wolf, I think about Dale Wolf, I think about seeing you on my television nearly yeah. every week for many, many years. I look at the two-man power trip of Wrestling Archive, and I just kind of gaze over and I see these names, Dusty Rhodes, Kamala, Lex Luger, Demolition, yeah. Sergeant. Slaughter, Tony Atlas, Ted DiBiase, Jake Roberts, Tito Santana, Shane Douglas, Ricky Steamboat, Manny Fernandez, Coco Beware, Brutus Beefcake, Don Morocco, Alex Wright, Paul Orndorff, and George the Animal Steel. Now, those are all guests that we've had on in the past, and there's one thing that all those guys have in common, and that is squaring off with our guest tonight, the one and only Dusty Wolf. Thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Yeah, thank you for having me. So that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty impressive list. Like I said, remember watching you many many years on television. Uh, I can remember actually the first match I I saw you in was against George Animal Steel. I see you get up in that hammerlock, and it looks very painful. But how are you doing these days? How's uh, you know the, how's the uh, you know the the post wrestling life treating you? Well, I can't complain. I got out about five years ago. Uh, I started back in college before I quit. And, since then, I've got my master's degree, and I'm teaching at one of the colleges here in San Antonio. And I'm enjoying life, remarried, got a good woman, three-year-old son. So I can't complain. Everything's going good. That's awesome. That's great to hear. And, uh, you know, that era is so timeless, that uh, that late 80s WWF era. Obviously, remember you from WCW. You know, you can go find some really cool matches of yours from Puerto Rico, but I think a lot of people remember that WWF era and those names that uh, those people I just rattled off. It's just it's an absolute all-star team of legends and Hall of Famers. But if you can kind of take us back to the start, how you got into the business, how you really uh, decided you wanted to become a wrestler, and obviously uh, not too long after debut, and you were in the trenches there, there in the WWF, and tell us how that all came about. Yeah, it's well, it's quite right after the debut. I started in '82. Uh, here in San Antonio, Southwest Championship Wrestling, and I was stuck around here for a little over a year, taking whatever uh, chance I was being given. And I finally got to go full time after about six, eight months here, and on the road five, six, seven nights a week. And I realized I was going to have to go somewhere in order to have a chance of anything. I ended up in Kansas City. And then from there, I made Memphis, Kansas City again, Puerto Rico. You know, not all the territories, but I made a good number of them. And then one time, early 87, I was coming back from Hawaii. I'd been over there working for Leah Mavia. And I decided it was as good a time as any to see if I couldn't get my foot over in New York. So I made a phone call from the L.A. airport, and I got booked. And that was how, that's I, mean, I wish I had some story that was dramatic and all that, but it's not. It's just, I made a phone call, I knew a couple of people in the office, and that was it. I never signed a contract today. Uh, one day I was there ever. I just walked in when they said show up. 
Well, that's a quite you know that's quite the journey to get there. And uh, one stop I want to hit on really quick. We're definitely going to get into Puerto Rico, but I definitely okay. want to hit on really quick before we get into the WWF stuff is that Hawaii territory. And we yeah. did talk to yeah. uh, to Mike Masters not too long ago about that Hawaii territory, and he told us some crazy, crazy stories about Hawaii and the fact that that was an area that was dying for professional wrestling. Obviously, the Maivia family was the main promoting entity of Hawaii. But why don't you tell us a little bit about that Hawaii territory? Not too many people really remember it too fondly or uh, really don't have that much that they could say because there's not that much out there about it. Well, no. It's like, this is the days before the tapes and all that stuff. And so you got to realize that in those days you had, you could run a territory isolated. You could be your own place and do your own thing. And I worked there off and on for about three or four months. And, yeah, especially when you got away from Honolulu itself in the smaller times, they were dying for any kind of entertainment. They loved it. Uh, Honolulu, they just had so much to do, you know, like any place else. You just don't get the crowds that you think you would. But, I mean, as far as, like, what? Just isolated or what? Because it was, it was definitely its own little world. They could they bring people in from they bring people in from New Zealand, Australia, the states, and then they'd have the, the big cards. You know, they'd have guys coming through to one to or from Japan, doing basically working holidays for the three or four days or whatever it would be. So there would be some really great talent there. It's just there was no direction behind the scenes when I was there. Yeah, that's a lot of the uh, you know the stories that have been out there about the territory is that after uh, the high chief passed away, it kind of uh, started to go down a little bit. And uh, that's not to say that anybody was running it poorly, but it just uh, I guess it didn't have the same uh, you know luster behind it. I've heard you know that there were some issues with pay and things of that nature with that territory. That's that true. Yeah, that the pay wasn't that great, but was it, you know, was it a glamorous uh, lifestyle out in Hawaii? I mean, was it tough because things can be a little more expensive there? Was it kind of tough to kind of get your bearings in a place like Hawaii? Well, I never stayed more than, say, a week at a time. So, and in that week, we'd be hit three or four other islands. So, yeah, you know, the pay, that was that was always a problem with Leah. I don't know about what it was with um, the high chief or Ed Francis before her. But it was with her because she knew that the majority of the guys who were coming or going to Japan, they didn't really need her paydays. So they just wanted to be in Hawaii for a few days. And then guys like me, we were young. We were hungry. We were looking for a chance. So she she knew who she was dealing with. But glamorous, it's Hawaii. I mean, how can Hawaii not be some fun? How can it not be nice? Yeah, definitely. I would uh, definitely uh, agree on that. And obviously, you know, passing through Southwest and coming through Puerto Rico, out to Hawaii, uh-huh. how did it compare to a couple of your original stops? Uh, and you already having a few years under your belt getting there, you know, what was it like, uh, you know, yourself being uh, a little bit more experienced in the territory like that? Oh, I was, when I went to Hawaii, I was looking more to make connections than money. I had already got the, the word that I wasn't going to make a lot. So it was one of those calculated risks. And I'm not going to say anything bad about it. I enjoyed it. I knew what I knew what I was getting into when I went. But um, I, I would have liked to have made more. Let's put it that way. That was the, one, that was the only thing I could ever say bad about Hawaii. Is 
you know, you would you break even if you did well. And you're not in this business to break even. Right. Yeah. But like I made some good connections. I made some good connections though, which I so I I succeeded there. Yeah, and like I said, it's a territory you don't hear that much about. That's why I thought it would be cool to kind of elaborate on it. And obviously, you know, you yourself, you've written a couple of books, The, jur- the Journal yeah. of a Journeyman, The Life and Times of uh-huh. an Indie Wrestler. You know, right. you you got the stories, you got the content to put out a book out there. Yeah. But, you know, when you talk to an up-and-coming wrestler and you think about your experiences in a place like that, you know, what's the kind of advice that you give them about getting out there to see the different territories? I know it's different now with territory systems not really being in place, but what's it like? There, to, uh, there's not one. What is the advice? Um, advice is, I would just tell, when the first again, I tell them to go whoever hire you, with the key being hire you, even if it's not enough money. Never set yourself to where, oh, I'm just whatever, you don't have to worry about it. No, don't ever do that because then not only do you shortchange yourself, you shortchange everybody around you. Uh, then it comes a point in time where you do have to start being a little selective because you, you want your name to become synonymous with some level of quality or some level of talent. And making just any show anywhere, that's not going to do that for you. And then to continue the progression, you just have to make the contacts. So there'll be a time or two where you do like I did with Hawaii. And by then it wasn't really a full-fledged territory like it had been. Then it was they would run like a week per month, and that was it. And you take a calculated risk. Can I afford to take that day or those two dates or those three dates and go and knowing I'm not going to make much money, but I know who's involved. That would be my suggestion to anybody. And if you don't take yourself seriously, if you don't take yourself into the wrestling business, what's the name of the business anymore? The wrestling industry, Vince's industry, Vince Man's industry. If you don't take yourself into that line of work was with the ultimate goal of ending up there. Don't start. Hmm. Last thing anybody needs anymore is another hobbyist, another guy that will do all this and do all that and not worry about anything because it's a hobby. He's getting a living dream. Don't be that guy. Hmm. Definitely some uh, some sound advice there. You know, it's funny. Before uh, we had this interview, I was talking to another friend of mine, and we're saying, you know, I'm having Dusty Wolf on the show. You know, we're going to be talking to Dusty Wolf. He kept saying Dale Wolf, Dale Wolf, and we're kind of going back and forth a little bit. And we kind of wanted to know, I mean, I guess it would have to do with Dusty Rhodes, but what is the, the story behind, you know, the change in 1989 from Dusty Wolf? Well, it wasn't the first you know, time. I knew with, with Dale Wolf. That wasn't the first time. Uh, I went into Florida in 1984, and when I went into 84 – I introduced myself to Eddie Ground, and he says, hi, how are you doing? We can't call you Dusty here. I said, it's been my name all my life, but okay. <laughs> and uh, and I said, well, just call me my middle name. My middle name is Dale. So my time in Florida, I used Dale Wolf. And then in New York, '89 uh, when he went in there, so I'd been there two, two and a half years. And Patterson comes up to me and says, we have to change your name. And I'm like, well, what did I do? I didn't know Dusty was coming in. I'd heard the rumors, but I didn't know for a fact. And I'm like, you know, did I do something wrong? Did I make you mad? What? Am I getting paid less? Getting paid more? What are we doing? 
And he's like, no, Dusty Rhodes is starting. We can't have two Dusties on the tape. And I, I literally, I looked at Pat, and I'm like, they can't tell the difference between me and him? And he just gives <laughs> that look. And when he gave me the look, and then he threw the cigarette down and grounded out, I said, okay, I've done this before. Let's just use my middle name. And that's how that happened. <laughs> yeah. Did, did Dusty remember you from the old Florida days? He had just left. He started booking Charlotte. I knew Dusty off and on from hanging around Murdoch and, and that sort of thing, but I hadn't really been around him a lot until he went to New York. But yeah, he knew who I was. What do you think about uh, Dusty? And obviously you got to work him a few times. What do you think about the American Dream? As far as, I mean, because that that's a loaded question. The man was a great talent, and as long as he was kept under control a little bit, he was a great booker. Uh, I don't have any bad things to say about him ever. I think he was, I was always amazed at how he could get over anywhere. Whether he was with Dickie or whether he was on his own, heel, baby. I mean, he was a little, as a youngster, I'm watching him and thinking, this guy's got him in the palm of his hand no matter where he was at. Uh,. Did he hang on a little too long at the end? You know, but things. wouldn't you if you're getting six figures guaranteed? No, I mean, I, have a, I wasn't in the position some of these guys are in, were in to where they were butting heads and the Eagles were clashing and that's that sort of thing. So he was, he was a tremendous talent. Like I say, he was a great booker for a while, and then just after a while, like even the greatest of bookers run out of ideas. That's true. Yep. You know, for sure. And it's funny, you know, you were in the WWF, you said you started in 87, basically you know, ended kind of the run there in about 93-ish. So, you know, six or seven years, a pretty long time to be in, you know, whether you're wrestling a lot or a little bit. I mean, obviously you're on TV a lot. Was there any run-ins with Vince McMahon, or, or how was he, you know, basically from 87 to 93? For me, I haven't, again, I probably should complain because everybody that ever bitches about Vince ends up with a job again. But I've always been honest, and the man treated me better than I had a right to be treated at that point in my career and kept me around longer than I would have kept him around if it had been the other way around. I'm going to be honest about that. Uh, Made more money for me than anybody else did during that time period. And uh, truthfully, there's no way around it. Made me more money than any other one promoter did, including some really good guys, but they just didn't have the machine he had. Um, no, I mean, I wasn't far enough. Again, I, that was one time where you have to be in that rare area. Not that it's even rare area, but you have to be up there to where you're butting heads for a position. You're butting heads for a payday. You're butting heads for uh, that next step up. And I didn't have that. I mean, I had nowhere to go but up, but I wasn't going to be given a chance either. I was slotted in where I was slotted in. That was what I was going to be, and if I didn't like it, I could leave. And I understood that. I was content because I looked around me and I see all these guys that are six two, six four, and chiseled, and and I'm not. So bless you, keep handing me checks that I should, I can't make anywhere else. Probably shouldn't be making. Just keep handing them to me. I'll I'll be here next week. And it's funny because, you know, it's great, you know, you've been around for those six or seven years and, you, you know, you, you see guys come and go, but you kind of 
maintain that role. And then some guys can't really play face or some guys can't really play heel or they can't really, you know, master either one. But you, you know, in your role, you were the face one week and, you know, heel maybe a week later or kind of always changed around. How did you, like, maintain, you know, being able to execute both being a face and being a heel? When I, when I was learning how to work in the first place, Don Carson is one of the two guys that trained me and he had a simple way of teaching you. A heel walks backwards and a baby face walks forward. Hmm. I mean, that's an oversimplification. I know some people are sitting there, when they listen to that, they're going to be like, huh? But that's all you have to remember. The baby, you know, the baby face is supposed to be the one that's going you know, straight ahead, but the heel is the one that's going backwards. And then the only other thing you had to remember was talking about TV. I wasn't having to worry about my gimmick. It was what was the gimmick that I was trying to get over. So I'm not going to suffer the same way for a guy that's slightly bigger than me than I am some guy that's six foot six. I'm not going to suffer the same way for a guy that's a, a technician as I am a guy that's just a brawler. You, know, you mentioned George Steele. I'm not going to sell the same way for George as I do for, say, Rick Martell. That just comes with the territory. Which is also great psychology as well. And Well, I, psychology and, is what kept me in the business, I think, honestly. Uh, like I say, yeah, good Lord willing, I was could have got on the, the sauce and could have gotten shredded. I could have done this or that. But I was still going to be 5'11 on a good day. <laughs> and I was living in the land of giants. So, and then when I got out of the land of the Giants, it was so cutthroat and so competitive to try to make a living on the independent scene that a lot of mine didn't come from physical ability. It came from knowing what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. Were you ever tempted to do steroids? You know, obviously that locker room. There was of course. Of course. Of course. I, I flirted with him for about four months. And I, I got bigger, and I couldn't walk across the floor without blowing up and a couple other things. And I said, this is, I, why, why? This is just not even worth it to me. It's funny with all those guys that are giants and all those other things, you know, like we said, you're able to play the heel, you're able to play the face. Did you prefer playing the face or did you prefer playing the heel in the WWE? Oh, I always preferred working as a heel. It's, it's, it's easier to solicit anger from people than it is happiness. It's so much easier. <laughs> if you don't win, I just want to go watch whatever your favorite shows are. Uh, on television, go watch your favorite movies. Who do the people remember the most? True, the villains. Yep, the heels. Exactly, exactly. And if you've got a, you like, I, I used to talk about Gunsmoke a lot because I grew up watching that show. I still watch it. Yeah, you had the, the lead babyface, but who are the people that really made him Marshall Matthew Dillon? You know, every week there was another guy in there trying to get him. That sort of thing. And then it's the same thing with the wrestling business. Wrestling business was so simple then compared to what it is now because even though we were we were doing what we were doing, performing, whatever you want to call it, we were doing it on our feet ourselves. 
we were having to read everything and do it as the events took place. There was no remembering anything except maybe a finish and everything. That's where we got that as we were going into the room. Uh, yeah, a long-winded heel, always. It was just so much easier. On the independent scene, you didn't mind being a baby face because it meant you could maybe do some uh, merchandise at the table or whatever, but I just, I didn't worry about it. And, you know, you kind of hinted at with today with as far as having to memorize scripts and stuff and you kind of, kind of you know, got to, got to go away from psychology and stuff today and kind of just go by yeah. what's on the paper. Do you think that you'd be able to, you know, do it today and do it because nope. it's so much different and so much cookie cutter. Nope. Not just flat out. No, I couldn't do it. I did good to remember the same spot four nights in a row. I because I wasn't worried about if I had one that really worked. Of course, like everybody else, I had something that really that I did it. But other than that, well, the thing was, I also came up in a different system too. I came up in a system where we were expected to get over, whether it was you, you know your job's the third match or you're in the main event, you were expected to get over to that level. And now, it doesn't matter what you do because all it is is about getting the office over and we'll slide whatever parts we want in the slide the machine to keep it working. So I couldn't fit into that system. I'm not the kind of guy that rebels and uh, creates a whole lot of trouble, but I'm not, I'm not quietly disobedient type guy that if it's not right, I'm just not going to do it. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. I, I know I couldn't fit do you watch any current wrestling today? Uh-uh. I tried watching Raw the other day. I mean, I'm not going to lie to anybody. I have tried watching Ring of Honor. And on Ring of Honor, I see some tremendous athletes, and I just sit there wondering, what in the hell are they doing? They could be so much more, but they're so busy trying to be a video game that they can't get across any ideas. Any angles, I can't get across. It's been trying to be a big bad guy. I said, "Here, that's the best person I can make." Um, SmackDown comes on at a bad time for me to try to catch it with my schedule and stuff. I tried watching Raw two weeks ago, I want to say, and I made it to about thirty minutes. And when I had watched twenty minutes of an interview, promo, skit, whatever you want to call it. And about five minutes in the ring, I'm like, this is something wrong here. We've always had promos. We've always had little behind-the-scenes things. But it was always to add to what was going on in the ring, not in spite of. And I just turned it off. I went back to Monday Night Football or whatever it was I was watching. Hmm. Yeah. And another thing that I've I've noticed about you know today's wrestling the characters you know, are no longer larger than life. There's nobody with like the charisma and you know that that big stage presence like an Ultimate Warrior, like a Hulk Hogan, like a Randy. And Dyer. you won't ever see it again. Right. What was it like back there in the WWF in that era in that locker room? Was that just crazy with all those egos and all those giant personalities? There were moments. I won't. I won't lie to anybody. There were moments where the the, the pecker check took place that sort of thing, and there were times where the fist fights took place. But for the most part, the guys, even if they didn't like each other, got along. We knew we needed each other. 
me more than me needing, needing them more than they needed me type thing. But, you know, yes, we needed each other. We knew we all had a place. And I don't know, you know, I look back and I hear larger in life. I hear this and I, look, I hear that and I'm like, either my memory's fading or I was just blind to stuff or whatever because I could see when we were out in public, I could see when we were doing a publicity uh, appearance or something like that. I could see how it was larger than life, but in my world, for the most part, I was always in the back with these guys running around dressing, undressing, and sick and hurt and so forth. So it was just a, a group of guys to me. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but the perspective was so different. Looking back, and then I, I look at, you know, like today, and you look at it from 30 years ago, and you see all the places that you would see Hogan, and you see all the places that you would see Warrior or whatever. And by that, I mean magazines and, and TV shows and that sort of thing. And you realize that these guys, they were larger in life. Like I'm saying, it, it's hard to explain because I never let it get to me like that. The only time I got nervous was my first night ever with them because I wanted a job. And then the only time after that that I ever got nervous was when I went to the Madison Square Garden. That was larger than life. The rest of the time, it was just my job, just a bigger building than other places. And what did you think about being in the Mecca at Madison Square Garden? Well, in those days, the garden still meant something. Uh, there was still the little aura or the air or the, the whatever you want to call it that you had accomplished a little something in your life if you've actually made the garden. You know, we still talk like that. You like the garden? Yeah, I've made the garden. You know, it still meant something. It didn't become just another stop on the on the never-ending tour. And there's definitely something about being, even though it's, what, the fourth garden or the fifth garden or whatever it is by now, it's still the garden. You know, this is the place where legends have headlined. And it, it does mean something. At least it did then. I don't know what it means to guys today. I, I think it's going to elicit some kind of big fight feel still, because obviously if you're a competitor and you're any bit of a historian, like you just said, it's the garden. I mean, it's got that cachet. It's got the history, whether it's boxing history or basketball or wrestling or hockey it's still playing a, a venue like the Garden, but that's not the only place that you you know you played or you, you wrestled in that was a big venue. Um, but for you, did wrestling in the big venue matter as long as the guy you were across the ring from was competent enough to kind of keep up with what you wanted to do in terms of, I guess, a lot of nights was me keeping up with them. A lot of nights was me keeping up with them. I mean, that list of names you ran through. There were nights I was keeping up with them and just you know, just hanging on. Uh, by the time I left, it wasn't quite that way. When I first got there, it was. I'm not going to lie. Um, no, I mean, actually, the bigger buildings, are the best. I would prefer the bigger buildings. I think we all would. But the bigger buildings, it's just there's much more of a feel in the bigger buildings. And they didn't bother me, because, especially in those days. They blacked out. You couldn't see anyway, so. Yeah, it was. And then, how about that New York fan? That's a kind of a, been a hot topic with us the last uh, 
last couple of months we've been kind of getting the feel of the different territories. So you got the New York fans are a little smarter to the business. They kind of know what's going on on the inside. They're a little more rabid, whereas maybe the Southern fans are more of a purist, and they can appreciate the actual physical work going on in the ring. You know, where did you like to perform? Did you like that that raucous crowd, that kind of smart crowd, or do you like the more you know knowledgeable and uh, appreciative fans? I didn't care as long as I, as long as they were making some noise. I think the worst town I ever worked in was Boston, as far as that or Evansville, Indiana. That was that town was like a graveyard. Um, it was it was horrible. I I, I talked to the boys. And I say it's always been this way. I don't know why we even go there. But that was, town was miserable. Boston was tough. We don't talk about smart market fans. And even in the late 80s, New York had nothing on Boston. They were tough. They were even worse than Philly. Uh, of course, I haven't been in Philly since all you went through there. But uh, I didn't care. As long as once I had them, I had them. Or I didn't have them, I didn't have them. My idea was just the reaction. That was That's all I was after. And but instead of trying to have the reaction from the time the bell rang to the time the bell rang, I was like everybody else. I knew when I wanted them to react, and I knew when I didn't want them reacting. So, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, get, I get your question, but to me, it just didn't. It just didn't. It, some of the places were harder. Like I say, Boston was miserable. Evansville, that was like if I never saw that town again, I wouldn't care. Uh, and I've been out of business six years now, I still wouldn't care. And but yeah, it was the idea. If even the harder towns, so in one way that was a, a, a satisfaction. Because even the harder towns, if we had them up when we wanted them up, and they were down when we wanted them down, we were still in control. And that, yeah, that that's an ego rush. It is. Everybody tells you differently lies. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's been kind of one of the uh, one of the questions that I like to ask guys of late with the guys that have been in the different parts of the country because uh, you know we kind of look back on those eras a lot more fondly. Uh, than we do today. Obviously, that's been real established <laughs> with us. But, yeah. you know, I I look at those names I read off, you know, and the other names that we didn't get to mention, those were just the ones that have been on the show with us. But you mentioned Rick Martell earlier. And obviously, you know, you wrestled him in tag matches. You wrestled him in singles matches. But a guy like Rick Martell, who's really regarded as one of the greatest in-ring guys uh, of that era, maybe even of all time, you know, and, and even his old partner, Tito Santana, these are guys that, you know, could have been considered, uh, you know, uh, maybe a night off, uh, you know, for you because they were so polished. But getting in with those technicians and those ring generals, did you like that? Did that help you get better? Uh, as a of course, player? of course. I mean, you don't learn unless the teacher knows something, and there's no other way to put it. These ring technicians, and these are the guys that I can already do A, B, and C as far as the moves go. These are the guys that began to teach me even more so and polishing up why I was doing it and when I was doing it. It was like teaming, uh, tag teaming against the Rock and Roll Express, uh, having a little mini angle with them in Florida. I learned more about tag team wrestling in that little mini angle than I had three, four months, five months prior. Now, those are the guys that you learn from. Exactly. Yeah, and it's it's a who's who. I mean, who you worked with. You know, it's, it's an absolute... Uh, it's just it's a dream team. I can't, I can't beat that into the ground enough. And just any cliche I can come up with, I'm going to use. But so many of them stand out and so many, you know. But who stands out to you? Who are the ones that you look back 
and you say, you know, wow, I can't believe I was across the ring from Dusty Rose or Ric Flair or even back in his oh, yeah. team days, another guy from San Antonio, Shawn Michaels. You know, who's the guy that stands yeah. out to you? Oh, God, you know, he stands out. I don't know because I wrestled at one point in time uh, in Vince's office. I wrestled every world champion he had from Backland until Undertaker, except for Hogan. And, you know, then when you go to the NWA champs, I wrestled all of them from Dory Jr. on until Wyndham, including Wyndham. So, you know, who stands out? That's such a tough one because it, it, there's only a handful of guys from that generation I missed, whether I was doing a job for them in three minutes or whether I was having to do 20 because we were in our house show and somebody hadn't showed up. Or, you know, I don't know. I was always, always partial to work here with... Uh, Dickie Murdoch, Jake was always a good one to work. Uh, Martel, Martel is another one top of my list. No, that's fantastic. That's 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 a really that's an awesome list. And, and you mentioned the house shows again. And yeah, you get those calls with guys that didn't show up uh, for the card, whether it was an injury or whether it was a no show or what. Mm-hmm. But when you got that chance, is that obviously uh, was that the goal, or did you enjoy doing the squashes more and kind well, of being out there the every week on TV? I the TV didn't matter to me. TV was just a way to generate income for my family. I mean, so we, we've talked about a whole lot about TV. That was six years out of almost 30. I, was, I worked a little over 29. And out of 29, I was full-time, oh, probably 28. You know, well, that's the way I tried to generate my income and living. And that's how strong that TV was. So it was it was income to me, though, though. The goal was to be on that booking sheet, even though it was a grind and it was miserable some weeks. You know, you start in Miami and you end up in Nova Scotia or that sort of trip, or you're in Flint, Michigan one day and Fresno, California the next, and Des Moines, Iowa the day after. That's those kind of trips. Those get old, but that's where the money was. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned all the world champions. You mentioned from Bob Backlund to the Undertaker for Vince's world champs, and one of the guys in there was the ultimate warrior, and obviously being over his head, there's only one way to go. It was the ultimate warrior as stiff as we've heard in some of those uh, oh, yeah. stories of those Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, don't even, I don't even try to deny it. I don't <laughs> try to make it. He's, I know he's dead, you know, and I always get the other guy, oh, he's got along with him. He and I always, he had conversations with me when he wouldn't talk to anybody else. We, I knew him from when he started down here in Dallas, and so hey, we got along well. And I honestly think he was easier on me than some folks, and he was just, just like running into a tree. And, you know, the times where he would grab you, it was like somebody just put you in a vice. Definitely a huge stiff guy. You worked him actually a pretty good amount of time. And you also worked Rick Rude a lot. I mean, obviously, yeah. I'm a warrior. What was Rude like? He seems like a, a stiff guy as well. No. No, he was just he was that good. There's, a, there's quite a few guys that are just that good. They look like they're tearing your head off, and they don't. And then there's others, you know, it looks good. It's like they're tearing your head off because they are. But Rude was definitely on the list of he, he didn't know his own strengths, but he was never that stiff, dangerous like warrior, ever. At least not with me. 
and then you work, you know, technical masterpieces, like you said, like Rick Martel or Ricky Steamboat or Brett the Hitman Hart. You enjoy yeah, Kurt Hennig. Yeah, yeah, until I got a little older and the body started breaking down. I was supposed to I much prefer those type of matches. You get a little older, you get in the last few years of your career, there's a reason why you start brawling, excuse me, and punching and kicking because you just can't anymore. But, yeah, when I was still able to go a little bit, those are the guys I ever give them to me every night, please. Hmm. Now, you know, the enhancement role, if you will, the quote-unquote the jobber role is kind of making its way back into wrestling now, but when it seems like it's a bit different now than it was then. Now, they don't even get an offensive move in. The guy, you know, is just getting killed and it's over. Can you explain, you know, kind of your role in those matches? Well, you, you had that some nights. You had that some nights. I mean, I did some nights. I've I've seen all, quite a few things. My oldest son, he finds them. And I've seen some nights where if I raise my hand, I'm shocked. I mean, I'd have to go rewind and find out where I did because that was what was going on with that opponent in that time where I they had going on. And then there were other nights where I had really what would be a competitive match, considering that I got my hand raised like, what, three times by DQ in six years, and that was it. And I was still having a, what would be considered a competitive match on TV with some of the guys. So it was just always what, what was needed. That was my job, do what was needed. And obviously, you know, they, they used to call him a handsman talent or they called him, you know, the quote-unquote the jobber. Did you, you know, some of the guys we talked to don't like that term jobber. They'd rather be called a handsman talent or, or you know, um, you know, the guy putting the other guy over. Did you ever have a I've never understood. Yeah, I, I don't like jobber. I don't. I, for me, and this is my take. I'm gone now, so it doesn't really matter. But we're all wrestlers. That's it. Some of us are underneath, some of us are in the middle of the car, some of us are on top. But we're wrestlers. And if you're going to use a term to describe the guy that does the job every night, enhancement, talent, carpenter, something like that. Because jobber is like a lot of other words that may not have been derogatory 20, 30 years ago, but it has been used and overused by so many people that don't mean well. It has become derogatory. It really has. I love the term carpenter as well. That's a, that's a good role. We're, you know, we're the enhancement guy. I, I like that name for it. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to use insider terms, otherwise, hell, we're all wrestlers. Right. We were, all, we were on top or we were on bottom, but we were wrestlers. And we kind of briefly mentioned it before you. I mean, you mentioned WWF a while, but you did work WCW as well. Did you like WCW at all, or you know, you, or you preferred WWF? I preferred the WWF. WCW was okay, especially at that point in time. I was, I wasn't always hurt during that time, but I had a couple of nagging injuries. And WCW was a place you could show up, sign your name, and leave. You didn't have to wrestle every night. You showed up. Which is probably part of the reason they went broke. But for a guy like me, it was great. But that was definitely the place where the inmates were in the asylum. And even then, they were letting other inmates run them. It was was nuthouse. 
<laughs> There's something to be said about having that one man at top. Yeah, and we called Vince Caesar. That wasn't by accident. He was like Caesar. And there's something to be said about that. Too many politics in WCW? Oh, yeah. They don't just put, not just politics, but you uh, had the egos, which creates politics. But the other big problem you had in WCW was there was just no direction. You have Kevin Sullivan or you have this person or that person that they've got the title booker. What were they booking? Go back and look at the tapes. What were they booking? You can tell these guys were doing their own thing. You can tell these guys were doing their own thing. What were they booking? With WCW, I know you were there in 96, but I was reading that you got paid for, I guess, until 98 or, or for longer than you actually wrestled there for. What, what is the story behind that? Is that, is that oh, I didn't, get paid longer than I, I didn't get paid for longer than I was there. I got there were times where you would just show up, sign your name, they had entirely too many people, so you'd leave. Huh. Uh, yeah, you know, there are many nice WCW. That's what I mentioned just a minute ago. It was great for me because I had a couple of nagging problems that I could show up, sign my name. You're not on the board. Okay, thank you. The check still showed up. Um, I asked for a retainer because a lot of the guys were on retainers weren't true contracts because you could work elsewhere. But they sent you basically X amount of dollars a week, and if they sent you a booking sheet or called you to be somewhere, you were to drop any other bookings you had if you took them. And you know, I asked for one of those deals, and was going to get it. I think, at least I was being told I was going to get it. But then I had words of Art Anderson in the back over one of their power plant students, and I didn't ever get the deal. What's the story behind the, the power plant student? Oh, it was Chip Minton, and he blew up in the center of the ring on TV, and I had like three minutes to go, so I started putting the boots to him to get the five minutes in because he didn't want well, couldn't, couldn't do anything. And then Arns gets on me about, you know, eating up one of their prized pupils, and I'm like, I couldn't, you know, the man's and good man's like 300 pounds. I can't pick him up off the mat if he's not going to move, especially when he's gassed. And, well, you know how to do it. I said, I know. That's exactly what I did. I said, I was your TV. And by that, then I said, one few times I've ever said anything back to a booker or anybody. And I'm like, well, you know, I got it. He's like, the next thing he says to me is something about, well, we've got so much money invested in him. I said, all right, I'll save you half that money. Just give me a contract for the other half. And <laughs> that was the end of my time at WCW. Hmm. Was that on Saturday night, or was that? It was one of the Orlando tapings. Whatever, wherever they put the Orlando tapings. Yeah. By then, I don't even know where the Orlando tapings were ending up, but it was in Orlando. I think they taped a bunch of shows for the syndicated programs as well. But that that's great that right. that blows up in the ring. You know, you have a certain amount of time. What else are you supposed right. to do? Exactly. Exactly. I'm still gonna put him over, but I got I got like three minutes to get through because he decided he wanted to do everything in the first minute until he's on shape too. And he's so nervous because he hasn't been on TV. And yeah, I'll never forget that. That was one of the deals I had just, and it would have been a good deal. I mean, I wasn't gonna make a fortune, but I was gonna get that check every two weeks to make sure that I took their dates whenever they called me. That was gravy for a guy like me. And you know. You did once wrestle Sting in WCW, Steve Regal, mm-hmm. Sting. I mean, there's so many mm-hmm. good guys. Did you enjoy any of your, any of the time down there? You know, before, you know, before you ended up leaving WCW. 
Oh yeah, I was one of the kind of guys where I could I could I'd make fun. So that was part of the reason. I think it's part of the reason I got hired some of the places I got. I knew how to make fun. But uh, I, as long as I kept it, just the guys that I knew, the guys I was friends with, and then when I did work, I'd just do my job. I didn't have any complaint there, but it's one of those things where you just you stand in the middle of the chaos and just hope that the vortex doesn't suck you in. That is the vortex of WCW, of course, you know, the like you said, the politics and everything else that was going around at that point. But, but I wanted to mention, we kind of briefly skimmed over before, your time down there in Puerto Rico, because, you know, your former multi-time tag champion down there, seemed yeah. like you, 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 know, you were on top of the card, having a great run. What was your time like in WWC down there in Puerto Rico? Well, I had three runs down there. I was in 86 and then 91 and 93. And I've always said it, uh, Puerto Rico would be a paradise if you didn't have to put up with the fans. That place was dangerous as late as 93. I don't know about today, but as late as 93, it was still dangerous. Uh, Puerto Rico's also a place that if you, the first time I went down there, I didn't get over that well. I was still a little green. But by the time I went back the last couple of times, Puerto Rico's kind of place to, it, it, as long as you knew how to work a little bit, you could get over. You, you weren't going to get rich because you were working for Carlos and Jovica, but the trips were never very long. You worked five days a week. It, it could have been perfect, but you have to deal with between the office and the, the violence in the buildings. You eventually you burn out. That's why I had three trips. I never stayed longer than like three or four months at any one time. He mentioned the fans being dangerous. Obviously, you know, there's stories of riots and throwing stuff at the wrestlers. What's the craziest kind of fan interaction you had down there in Puerto Rico? Down in Puerto Rico, uh, Ponce was the town where people would sell rocks outside the building. They'd sell spark plugs outside the building so they could, people could throw them at us, and then they'd have little kids go in there and pick them back up and so they could sell them the next week. That was amazing to me. Did you ever get uh, any injuries or anything from a fan? Not there. Uh, even Carlos Jovica had sense enough to keep. I don't think I saw a ringside, but like maybe four times or my entire time down there. So there was always some distance between us, and that made all the difference in the world. There, I've been stabbed when I was over in Africa. Uh, I guess that's the worst that's ever happened to me. I've had to punch a few people here and there, you know, when you're fighting your way back out of a building and stuff. But I think that was the worst, yeah. <laughs> stuff. And, uh, you know, through your career, you've always kind of, obviously you maintained uh, time on TV, obviously when we're talking about WWF, but it's cool because everyone kind of remembers you, whether it's festival still, if they remember seeing you on TV, WWF, WCW, but what about your time down there in Texas for you know for the Von Erich company for a while? You were there in WCCW. Did you enjoy your time down there in Texas? Well, it's home, and I'm a, I'm a native, and so between working for Joe Blanchard and Fritz and whoever else I worked for on the independent scene, yeah, I, if I could have made a living and, and done like Lawler and stayed in the same spot for forty years, I would have, but I wasn't that fortunate. And, I, and when I was younger, I had a little wanderlust anyway. So, and to me, it was good to leave for a little while and then come home. It made home better. 
and uh, you work for Global as well, you know, for, you know, yeah. Down there. Yeah. Kind of cool I was at the auditorium. Yeah, I was in Global. I, well, at one time, I don't think, I don't think the Sportatorium ever went without wrestling more than a month or so until it was demolished. Truthfully, you know, Global wasn't the only group that went in there after Fritz. They were guys in and out of there constantly because it was the, the building was that known, that famous. Uh, we just expected wrestling to be there. And I worked for most of those guys at one point. And didn't you work as uh, Mr. Wrestling number three when you were in Global? Yeah, and then out in uh, the Mississippi area, Louisiana area, uh, and then south, you know, out in that, in that uh, I don't know if that's considered the deep south or what part of the south that is, but out that direction. Yeah, I did I did that for seven, eight years. It all started with Terry Taylor. He was helped put together an office in Mississippi that actually had a local TV and was they did a little bit of business for a little while. And he's like, I will, I want you in here, I wanna do this, I wanna do that. But and it was ninety four. And he just spent six years getting beat and I said, Well, put a mask on me, it's still you know, some odd years ago you could do that. And it was the South, which people always like their mask wrestlers down there. And so, well, what are we going to call you? I said, I don't know. Come up with something. And I said, well, let's call him this wrestling. Well, we'll, we'll put the three after. And then a little bit while later, Johnny Walker swore to me to go after that he was okay with it. So that's how that came about. Pretty cool uh, little bit of a story there on that gimmick. Cause I, was, I was actually going to say, I, I wonder how it came about. But that's pretty funny sometimes in the wrestling business. That was just things happen and there was no real thought behind it. You know what I mean? That's my whole career. <laughs> it really was when I started. I didn't know what to expect, but I'm not going to let them stop me. Then when I went to Kansas City, I had no clue what I was getting into, but I did. Same thing in Memphis, Florida, Puerto Rico, working for Savoli. The 20-some-odd overseas trips I made, I may have gone back for the same promoter, but I still didn't know what towns we were going to part of the time. Uh, I had no clue what to expect went to then. I, I never had a I just, I just went. I just did. And then as things happened, I put them together and we made them work. And if they didn't work, I just, there was another place to go, at least in those days it was. And you also at one point were playing Doink. Well, what's the story behind playing Doink the Clown? I did a couple of times for this, and then we were going overseas, and we were going back to Africa, and somehow our promoter knew about it, and can you do it? I guess. The worst they're going to do is cease and desist, right? And so I did, and then I came back home, and somehow word got out that I had the, I had the, the outfit, so people started calling me for it. I'm like, okay. And I got word a couple times from Vince, you know, don't ever get arrested in the outfit. Don't ever do anything stupid. And I won't ever say anything. And so I did. <laughs> there for a while, people were calling me right and left. So I'm like, he's hoping, you know, but sent one well, directly, but he sent word to me, just stay out of trouble. Don't put it on TV and that sort of thing. I'm like, okay. Thank you. He knew he wasn't bringing me back, and he knew I had to make a living, and so I wasn't going to create a problem. So, so yeah, that's how that came about. With playing him when you were, you know, in the WWF, was it any significant role? Were you ever doing, you know, at, at a significant TV taping? Or no, no. Like it, 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 right as I was leaving is when they had, I don't know, probably the hottest 
mentality had there, 93 or so. And you'd be surprised at some of the guys who put that outfit on because they needed a doink in the town that night. And Matt or Ray Apollo, whoever was actually putting the gimmick on TV, was in the A town that night. And, you know, they had two of the towns they were running that night, that sort of thing. And they just pulled the pulled gimmick off the truck. Very, very cool stuff. And uh, as we start to wind it down a bit here, I wanted to ask you, because, you know, we mentioned so many of those awesome guys and, you know, that you wrestled, whether it be War, your Steamboat, Savage, Flair, Brett, Michael, you know, the millions of guys. Do you have a favorite match or a couple of favorite matches that you've had that, you know, maybe we, we didn't mention or, or maybe, you know, we kind of skimmed over? Uh, well, as far as this is, no. No, I, some of the best work, if it was on camera, I don't know about it. Like most guys, hmm. you know, either you you go through like those six years of events, you figure I had three, four hundred matches on those on the TV over those years. Maybe not that many, probably about two hundred to three hundred out of over four thousand. So picking picking a favorite, I don't know. One or two times with the Rock and Roll Express out there in Florida when I was and I was just holding on for good life, and you watch it later and you realize that that was really a good match. Um, I say some of, some of the stuff that I would have been proudest of would have been in places that there was no camera rolling, which allowed me to do more of what I knew how to do, and with some of the guys I was with, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, a couple times with like King Parsons, a couple times with King Parsons and some of these towns out here in Texas, and they couldn't have been a camera rolling anywhere. And we had, you know, decent crowds and we just went out there and it was, there were times like, you know, ice, can we go home sometime? Oh, not yet. Oh, Jesus, please. <laughs> because we had them, we had it going. And I'm like, I go home anytime after, you know, we've been out here 30 minutes. I go, not yet, not yet. And so those were, those were some of the matches that stand out when I'm sitting there thinking about them later. Uh, I don't know, the first time I ever worked with Tracy Smothers after 20-some-odd years in the business. We were in some town in Alabama, you know, for, by today's standards, a decent crowd, full 500 people. And the same thing, it was just going so, it was just flowing so smooth, and everything was working, and when I hear the, the time call, and I'm like, you know, I should be blowed up. And once I heard that, I am now, let's go. But it had been so smooth up to that point. Hmm. Mother's underrated. Iceman King Parsons, uh, very oh. underrated as well. I like those two. Uh, like those two names you pulled out of the hat. That's a good one. Uh, if there were a name in the wrestling business between 1970 and 19, you know, 2000, I was probably in the ring with it at least once. There's a really good chance. Definitely, and with all the names uh, you know that we went through, and it's it's fun actually to kind of go back and uh, YouTube and type in you know your name and just watch uh, uh-huh. you versus Mister Perfect, or you versus Lex Luger. Uh-huh. I was just watching that earlier today. Right, it's, just, it's fun. It's fun to go back and do that. Do you ever go back onto YouTube and look and be like, man, I forgot I wrestled this guy? Or, oh, not, on <laughs> not on purpose. Not on purpose. 
like I said, my oldest son, he has, I guess, a, a Google search or something set up to him. My name pops up. And on occasion, the, the new one pops up. He'll send it to me. And then I'll see it. So that's how I've seen most of any of it. Most of any of it. I, I did go looking for when I heard that there's some Puerto Rico stuff and some Florida stuff. I went looking then, but the Vince stuff, I never really searched it out, but my son found, God, I don't know, 40 or 50 of them. Pretty cool stuff, and uh, definitely cool for the you know for your son to go back there and be like, oh look uh, look at this my you know my dad uh, on TV you know like you said three hundred times for Vince or you know whatever two hundred yeah. times it's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah, he was a kid there those days, so that's it also brings back memories for him too. Oh yeah. Now we mentioned a couple favorite opponents of yours before, like uh, Dickie Murdoch or Rick Marcel. Do you have any other favorite opponents that maybe we, we wouldn't know of or that were kind of, you know, from maybe uh, Kansas City territory or, or Puerto Rico that maybe we wouldn't have known? Well, Roger Kirby. Roger Kirby was a great hand. Uh, in Puerto Rico, uh, Ray Gonzalez is probably the best worker in Puerto Rico. Ricky Santana. Um, yeah, most of these guys got off the top of my head. Yeah, and we were talking about all the different places, and obviously, you know, you love Texas because it's home, but do you have a favorite territory or a favorite place you worked or maybe favorite country? As far as a territory, Florida is great. Short trips, you know, we're other uh, talent was always top notch. As far as, you know, I could, like I said, as I said earlier, I would have stayed home my entire career if I could, but I couldn't. Country-wise, when I went overseas, I would have loved to have seen more of Germany. I enjoyed the hell out of England. Uh, that's probably been my top favorite. Belgium, I enjoy you. Surprisingly, I enjoyed Belgium a lot. What a what a career! You know what a what a path to follow. And really, we've enjoyed. The walk down memory lane. Talk about all the great opponents. Talk about all the stops. But before we uh, before we wrap it up here, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the books? We kind of glanced over that too. But tell us more about your yeah. writings. Uh, what we can what we can find where we can find it. What we can learn about. And you know, tell us uh, anything there is to know about, and maybe any other yeah. future projects got coming up. I don't know about any future projects because college is keeping me pretty busy. Um, plus, I don't know that I'm that interesting. But uh, the book itself, uh, it's on Amazon. All you have to do is type in my name, and it pops right up. And I don't even know what it's for. I think it's like 1895 or something like that. So anyway, it's reasonable. Um, that's the easiest way to find it. I'm on Twitter at Rancho Wolf. Yeah, my wife runs that, but if anybody wants to tweet me, it is me replying. It's just her doing the typing. I don't know how to use that Twitter stuff. Then um, on Facebook, you just look me up under Dusty Wolf. And any of those ways, any of those means, there's a way to get a book thrown if anybody was interested. And it covers everything it's, uh, as far as the business goes that I could think of that I thought might be interested to folks. And I took it all the way to the end when I retired and why I retired, and, which is something a lot of guys never discuss is why they get out. Yeah, that's not something we generally hear is why they got out to that. That's a uh, 
That's a hell of a good insight to uh, to kind of wrap your head around. But you know, you just mentioned Twitter there, and this is this will definitely be the uh, the wrap up here. But what would have happened to professional wrestling if there was a Twitter in the 1980s? <laughs> I think it would be more safe than it is today. As far as nobody can make money because there's no secret left. That's how you made money in the old days. Who was going to come in and try to beat the camp? Who was the manager going to bring in to try and destroy the territory and take over the world? There's no surprises left, so it'd be even worse than it is now. I can't imagine uh, what it would be like to see, uh, you know, somebody tweeting after a match, you know, with uh, with a Ric Flair or Rick Martell or a Tito Santana, hey, great match, you know, thumbs up, but... Yep, that's always one of the things we love to look back at. Hey, what if there was Twitter in that bygone era, mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. that timeless era? A lot of yeah, a lot of secrets exposed, and definitely uh, maybe a lot of other things too that uh, you know have gotten out over the years in terms of the urban legends of some of the guys. All I know is I'm glad there was no camera phones in my day. I can promise you that. <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, listen, Dusty, this has been a lot of fun, and we really appreciate you taking a walk down memory lane, and it's obviously, it's nice to call you Dusty. I want to call you Dale, but I'm going to call you Mr. (laughs) Wolf like I did earlier in the evening, but thank you so much for spending the time with us and, uh, and looking back at your career. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.